for us to feel comfortable, you want to try to negotiate an early access. If you cannot get that early access for whatever reason, then you have to negotiate for only a portion of your, your money to go hard. So if you're putting down $200,000, for example, then maybe only 25000 will go hard or 50000 will go hard. And the rest of it, the remaining will go hard after you complete your due diligence. Welcome to XN State. Where's the greatest opportunity in real estate today? That's what I need to know. We'll hear from industry leaders with boots in the ground and skin in the game. Who's winning? How are they winning? Stick around and we'll find out right here on XN State. Welcome back to XN State. This is your host, JCQ. Today we have a guest with a very peculiar background, a very unique story about how he quite literally transformed his life through real estate investing. 10 years ago, Juan Vargas was working at a BMW dealership in Houston. He had a wife, two young kids, and he felt that he was not spending nearly enough time with them as he should. And that's when he decided to turn to real estate. Today, through his company Gen Wealth Capital Group, Juan oversees the operations of over 700 units and is an equity partner in over 1,500 units. In our interview, we discuss exactly why multifamily often makes more sense than investing in single family the process of acquiring an out-of-state property and how to start from zero in a new market. And we go into some pretty specific aspects of the multifamily investing process, such as what banks want to see in a borrower in order to get comfortable with making a loan. Juan is also host of two podcasts, El Cashflow Cafe alongside Andrew Kiefer, whom we actually interviewed here, and the Commit to Wealth podcast. I highly suggest you check both of them out. Thank you very much for tuning in to XN State. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. Here is today's guest, Juan Vargas. Juan, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you doing this morning? Hey, Jorge, it's a pleasure to be on your show. So I'm doing well. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's an honor. So I'm I'm excited. I'm happy. Let's do this. Awesome. You've had the opportunity to interview me twice already. So now it's it's my turn. And <laughs> we had to do it twice because we had some technical difficulties there. So uh, if it doesn't work the first time, you keep trying until it works. And that's what we did, right? Exactly. Uh, a couple of times. So yeah, no, it's good. I'm happy to be here. Yes. Awesome, Juan. So why don't we begin by hearing a little bit about who you are, getting to know you a little bit better and hearing about what your story is and how you got involved in real estate. Yeah. So I started in real estate around the 2014, 2015, and it was through single family, right? So my dad was already in single family, even even as a kid, and he always told me to get into single family to buy some houses. It took me a little bit, a little longer to get into it because I saw him doing it all himself, A through Z, maintenance guy, you know, doing all everything, right? So it took me a while to actually learn a little bit more about it, and then. 2014-2015 is whenever I started getting into, into single family. In 2016 is whenever I bought my first multifamily property. And then, um, you know, since then, I've been involved in, in several different deals, uh, both as a, a, as a limited partner or I'm a passive investor and, and as a, a general partner where I've been a uh, syndicator and a lead, you know, general partner. So, uh, yeah, I've been involved in several different deals now. And so we've had deals in uh, in Dallas, Phoenix, and uh, and here in Houston. So I'm based out of Houston here locally with, with you, Jorge. Yeah, I love it. Uh, Houston is a, it's a good place to be in. It is, yeah. There's a lot of good things going on here in Houston. A lot of activity, a lot of um, uh, strong economy. So we, we really like Houston, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So how did it look like back in 2014, 2015, when you began investing in single family? What, what does it mean to be investing in single family? What type of properties were you looking at? Yeah, yeah. So back then, I was looking at uh, nothing but single family houses. And so with single family, the, the difference is, the biggest difference for me and the reason why I chose to go into multifamily was because if, if you have a house and, and you are vacant, then you're 100% vacant, right? If you, if you have a multifamily property and it's a, it's a 10 unit and you have one person or one tenant leave, then you're still 90% occupied. So th- that was the biggest difference for me was, you know, you, you get that scale, that instant scale with the multifamily. But I didn't know that when I was first starting, right? You know, back then it was more about, hey, you know, buy, buy some houses, you know, put a down payment on these houses, uh, get regular conventional finding, financing, and then and just hold on to them, you know, do a 30-year mortgage or whatever. And then, you know, and while, while that strategy can work, you, you need a bunch. I mean, you need big scale, you know, like on the single family side, you need a lot. So 
you need to get to 50, 100 houses for, for it to really, really make sense on the, on the scalability side of things. And how did you make that transition from single family into multifamily? What, what helped you make that transition? Because I'm sure it's a, it was a big step for you at the time. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was, I mean, it was a, a moment that I had, you know, hey, I, I'm vacant at one of my houses. You know, I need, I need to do something, right? So that was the transition in, into the idea of going into multifamily. And so, you know, really, to be honest with you, I, I didn't know a, a whole lot whenever I was looking for my first multifamily property, all I knew was that, hey, if there's enough income, there's enough expenses, um, you know, you're able to pay down your, your, your debt service, which is the mortgage. If there's money left over after that, then, then that's cash flow, right? So that, that's what I knew. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just read a couple of books. I read a couple of books and then I was like, okay, that's enough. Let me put this to work. And so I think that's something that's kind of propelled me to take action or to get to the next level was that I, I was able to, you know, learn what I did and then put it to work, right? Put it to action. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the biggest keys in, in people that are able to keep moving and versus those that don't is just the ability to take action, you know? And, and that's, like I said, what I, what I did on that situation. Yeah. And by that time, you also had two years of experience in single family. So it's not like you just started reading books and decided to buy a multifamily property, but you already had the experience, you had already done a lot of the work and a lot of the work in investing in a single family is transferable to investing in multifamily, right? So you it, weren't it starting at zero. Yeah, it is. I mean, a lot of it is, is similar, yet it can be different for sure, right? But yes, you know, there as far as it's a tangible asset, yes, you're able to get debt on the asset. Yes, you know, for both, for single family and multifamily, you're able to... I mean, you have to do your math, right? You have the income, you have the expenses, you pay down your, your repair maintenance. You know, well, the, the biggest difference I would say is that on the multifamily side versus the single family side is that the multifamily side, you pretty much, you operate as a business. And, and while the single family side, you can operate as a business, if you get that skill, then at the very beginning, you're not going to be able to do that, right? You're going to have one or two houses and it's going to be more of a personal investment, right? You're going to be managing them yourself. Once you get to the multifamily side, it's, it's a business. You treat it as a business. The lender treats, treats it as a business. And so that's the way they see it as well. Um, so that, I would say that's the biggest key difference, you know, and also in the way the way they're valued as well, you know. So there's a, there's a lot of differences, but uh, yeah, yes, there are some similarities there as well. Okay. I've heard you before articulate the differences between investing in single family and multifamily mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very well. And right now you sort of gave us a, an overview, but just to summarize the reasons why multifamily is more attractive to you than single family, would you say it's, yeah, first so, of all, the vacancy risk? Right. So there's a lot of, I, and I can just, you know, list, I don't have them all like right here on my mind, but I could definitely go through them. So one of them is the scalability, you know, as I was saying, the scalability where, you know, you're saving money for a down payment for a house and, and you'll save maybe five, 10, 20% on a hundred thousand dollar house. I mean, and this is a hundred thousand dollar house, you know, which they're harder to find nowadays. Right. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you have to keep saving, you have to keep saving, you have to keep acquiring properties versus on the multifamily side. Yes. Where the down payment could be bigger. Right. But you're not doing it alone. You can do it with partners. You can syndicate. I mean, there's a lot of different ways where you can put that capital together. So that's one thing you get that scalability where you have one asset, but it's, you know, 30, 40, 100 units all in one location versus having, you know, 100 different insurance policies, 100 different mortgages, you know, and, and 100 different, you know, maintenance guys, you know, 100 different locations. It, that just is a mess, right? Accounting is a mess. Or you can have 100 unit property in one spot, one maintenance staff, one, you know, property management staff, one, you know, mortgage, uh, one insurance policy, all for 100 units. You see, that that's the biggest difference, you know, that's why I like multifamily. And so one of the other big pieces to it is, as I said earlier, that the, the lender treats it as a business and, and so do we. And so they also value it. The valuation is based off of the business, is based off the NOI. And, and the NOI is simply is you have your income, you have your expenses, and then whatever's left over is the net operating income, right? And so that's what they value the property on. So, so there's, there's a cap rate and without getting in too much into detail, without confusing anybody, but there's a cap rate that you divide a, a cap rate and that's market driven. And that's how you're able to get the value of the property. So, so you have the NOI and then you have the, the cap rate, you divide it, and then you have the, the value of the property. 
so in comparison to a single family, single family is just it's just on comparables, right? The comps that are nearby. So if you buy a house for a hundred thousand dollars and there's a house that's across the street that's that's been recently rehabbed or recently renovated but sold for one hundred and fifty and it's similar square footage as yours, similar vintage, then you can expect to get maybe one hundred and fifty if you do similar renovations to your property, right? But not too much higher than that. That's about the ceiling there. Where we're in multifamily, because it's commercial real estate, then the biggest difference there is that, you know, even though you have two different properties or two similar properties, one across the other, if you have one that's operating much higher in a while, then it's, 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 a, it's valued at much higher. So that's the biggest differences, you know, that I would say. But then the, the lender also sees it as less risk. So they're able to give you non-recourse loans versus recourse, you know, when, when you're buying a single family house. And that pretty much means a recourse means that you're you're guaranteeing the loan versus on the non-recourse with the, with the commercial real estate, you don't necessarily personally guarantee the loan if it's over a certain a loan amount. So yeah, we, we can start getting into more and more details there. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, big pluses there for the yeah. multi-company side, yes. Yeah, you, you covered the important one. And the, the one I wanted to touch on was how multifamily property is valued based on what it produces as opposed to based on comparable sales. And that means that you also have a lot more power and control yes. in increasing the value of the property by either increasing its income or reducing its expenses. And that will very directly translate into a difference in value. Whereas if you can do improvements to a home and its price is still going to be more so affected by comparable information than by the property itself sometimes. Yes, I agree a hundred percent. And that's what you got. You, you have to, you know, realize that that's the biggest, one of the, the key biggest differences in commercial real estate. And this is not just apartments. I mean, this is across the board, you know? And so, I mean, what do you do? You, you do office space, you know, Jorge, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, I mean, I know your strategy is to, to sell them, you know, ultimately, but if you were to lease them, you know, or whatever, then, you know, you can have, it, it can work the same way, right? I mean, there's so many different ways to, to structure that, but that's one of the, the the key benefits of the commercial real estate space. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So tell us about that first deal that you did in 2016 that got you into multifamily. How did that come to be? <clears throat> so as I was saying, you know, I had a single family house, you know, and I was frustrated because I was, I was vacant. And I was like, you know what? I need to do something about this. And so this is a property that, that I acquired through direct mail. So I simply started sending letters out to, to people within a certain area. And then I started to cold call. So I was just calling people if I was able to find out their contact information. Luckily for me, I was able to come across an older couple who was looking to, to sell at that time and they were getting ready for retirement. And so they followed or they responded to my my letter that I had sent. And then they said, yeah, let's let's connect. Let's meet up. You know, we'd like to discuss with you. And so, yeah, I was able to build a rapport uh, with them and, and I was able to uh, finally uh, close on, on the deal as well. So it's a 32 unit outside of Houston. You know, we, the purchase price was a million bucks, 32 units. So, you know, uh, this was, as I said, you know, before I, I was able to learn about syndication and all that good stuff, it was uh, myself and a partner of mine that took it down. Mm-hmm. We were able to do a lot of good good things to the property. We, we started with exterior renovations, painting, you know, landscaping, you know, some repairs. And then we went to the interiors and started to uh, renovate the interiors. And uh, we were able to get a pretty big uh, bump on the rents because they were pretty pretty below market for you know, they had owned it for several years since the beginning. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, it was a good value add uh, property there. And how long did the, did the whole investment period take? Or do you yeah. still own the property? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I sold the property. I actually had a uh, seller's remorse shortly after because, okay. you know, I was like, man, why did I sell it? It was, it was a good little deal, right? I held it for about 19 months. And so we were able to, to produce some pretty strong returns. You know, it was nearly a 400% return overall. And then, you know, it was over, you know, 100% IRR. So it was a good, strong deal. Mm-hmm. And we're able to, to do a lot. And that was my first deal that I was able to get my hands dirty with, really mm-hmm. learn the, the ropes. And then shortly after that, I was like, hey, man, there's another model, which is syndication where we can all put our capital together and, and acquire larger deals. But that was for sure my, my first one and uh, where I learned, uh, you know, a whole lot. So, those little deals are, are good, right? They're, they're good. But the, the problem with them is that, you know, they're more time intensive. And that's kind of the, the drawback to doing a smaller deal, right? You, you get more of the pie, but then you're also spending more time, a lot more time 
So there's definitely, you know, uh, some balancing there, right? So it's not all, uh, you know, beautiful because you will spend more time on those. Mm -hmm. At what point did you stop looking at this as a side business and decided to go full-time into this business? Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. You know, so I had a single family. I had, you know, property, the multi-family property, the 32 unit. And then I started learning about uh, the syndication model by investing in a couple of deals. I also uh, did um, some co-sponsorships, you know, on in, and took down some deals. So, you know, at that point, I was like, you know what, let me focus on this full time. So my background is with, uh, I was with BMW on the, on the technical side. And so, you know, I, I decided to just, you know, leave the W2 career and, and focus on this full time. Because, you know, it's, for me, it was a matter of, hey, you know, either I stay there and, you know, I'm working there, you know, seven to seven, it, we're pretty much the hours, or I can focus on this and try to make something uh, from this business. And so, yeah, this was, I would say, you know, a couple of years after, after acquisition of that property. Yeah. Okay. Tell us a little bit more. You've mentioned syndication a couple of times. What is that? And what's the difference between that and what you did on your 32 units? Yeah, very good question. So what I did on the first property was a pretty much a partnership, right? So, you know, it was myself and a partner and, and we pretty much took it down. He's a good friend of mine. He did, you know, some work on the on the single family side. He's a general contractor. And so this was a deal that I was looking to take down myself. At the end, you know, he we, we talked and he wanted to, to come in. He has the experience on the renovation side, obviously. So it, it was a win-win for us. So that was on, on a single, uh, that 32 unit, you know, so it was more of a JV, a partnership on a syndication side. So this is where you're, you're buying larger deals. Typically, I mean, you can even syndicate a 32 unit, but typically it's for the larger deals. And so it, it can be, you know, 20 investors, it can be 30, 40, a hundred investors, right? There, there's really no, no limit. It just depends on the size and, and what your minimum amount is. But mm-hmm. what it is, is you have the, the general partnership side which are the, the, the lead guys that take down the deal, that put the deal together, that pretty much oversee the deal. And then you have the limited partners, which are the passive investors. And those are the guys that pretty much put the, the capital up for the deal. And the GPs also put deals or capital into the deals as well. You know, at least we do, right? So to collectively together, you're able to take down you know, a 10 million, 20 million, $30 million deal. And you know, you're able to move forward with that versus you know, a deal where you could only do by yourself and it could only be maybe a five unit or 10 unit or 20 unit, you know? So that's the biggest difference. And so that, that whole process is called a syndication where you're able to pull together. Okay. It's called a syndication. Yes. Okay. When, what does the typical structure look like? You mentioned how many partners you have there. Does, what does each partner do? Does each partner have a specific role and area of expertise within the property? And do you use the same group for different investments or do you just use one structure per group, I mean, per property or how does this work? Yeah, that's another very good question. So the way we we typically structure our deals is, so you have the the general partnership side, which are the guys that put the deal together, overseeing the deal. That can typically be, it could be a couple guys, two guys, it can be, you know, five guys, you know, it just just depends, right, on on the deal itself. And so how you determine that number is, hey, the deal could be a larger deal, right? If it's a you know twenty or thirty million dollar deal, then you, then you may need more guys, because there's there's certain requirements that we need for the lender to be able to qualify for the the deal itself. So uh, a couple of those are like the net worth and, and liquidity requirements. Mm-hmm. So say you're buying a twenty million dollar deal, right? No, let, let's let's make it simple. So even more simple, a ten million dollar deal. Well. The lender typically will give you, you know, 75 to 80 percent of the loan amounts, right? So they give you as a loan 75 to 80 percent, and so what they want you as a group, not necessarily you by yourself, but they want us as a group collectively, is to have that that 7.5 million, that 8 million in net worth collectively, right? So mm-hmm. where I came up with the number is that 75 to 80 percent of the of the deal, right? The purchase price. So they want you to have that. In addition to that, they also want you to have, you know, approximately 10% of the loan amount. So if you're looking at, say, 800000 uh, or $8 million, then they want you to have about 800000 in in liquid cash, you know, after okay. closing. So sometimes, you know, you may not have that, right? You may not qualify one way or, or the other. So you bring in partners that that do bring in that, that, that piece, right? Maybe you have, uh, you know, 
your, your uncle that has, you know, a net worth of 20 million and he's got 10 million of cash laying around, right? Then he can come in with you and, and to collectively you can qualify for the loan. And then, so that that's that's one piece. There might be a other guy, another guy that that brings you know some experience, or or he brings uh, a big network, you know, w- with capital or whatever. Right. So there's so so many ways to, to structure the GP side, the limited partnership side. That also depends on the size of the deal. So as I said earlier, it can be anywhere from 15 guys to, to 100 guys, just depending on on how much uh, the investment amount is. Uh, so the investment amount usually is anywhere from 50,000 to 100,000. Um, our deals have typically been from fifty to seventy-five thousand in that range, and so between or th- the way the splits are is 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 twenty percent for the GP side, eighty percent for the limited partnership side. So eighty percent for the passives, twenty percent for the the lead guys that that take the deal, and we we typically do that for for cash flow distributions and for equity or capital gains. So even when you go to sell the properties, is split eighty twenty. That's typically the way we we do our deals. But there's a lot of groups that do it uh, different structures in different ways, yes. Okay. And you said your banks, they lend you money with a non-recourse loan. Correct. What does that mean? Yeah. So, so a non-recourse means that that uh, you're, you're, you're not personally guaranteeing the loan. So the bank sees this. So they, they still check your, your credit, right? They still want to run your background and do all that good stuff, right? Uh, they still want to see what, what assets you have, right? But it's not as important if you have like a 600 credit score, that's not as important to them um, as it is like if you were buying a house and you're personally guaranteeing a house. So, you know, you want a higher credit score for a house, uh, 700, 800, because you want better interest rates, right? And you want, you know, better terms with your with your lender, right? You want to be able to qualify better. And so on the on the commercial side, it's more about the, the business that you're buying than it is about you. It's, and you're very important. So I'm not trying to minimize that at all, but... They want to know the the asset, what the asset is doing, and then they, they also look at you, right? You're kind of secondary in a way, and so they look at you, your assets, your personal financial statement, you know, your experience, you know, have you done loans, you know, before um, through with banks? So the, the biggest key is that you know they see it as as a business, so they can give you the, a non recourse loan. So that means that if you, if you fail on the property, it doesn't perform because the economy goes down. Then you know, unfortunately, you can you'll be losing your capital that you invested into the deal, but then you can simply turn in the keys and say, Hey, I'm sorry, you know, Mr. Bank, but you know, it didn't work out. The economy, you know, took a dive and here we are. So they, then what, what they will do is they'll simply just, just take the keys and, and take over the property and then try to sell, sell it to somebody else. But they're not going to come out to your personal assets, you know, that you have your, your, your personal bank accounts or, or, you know, your kids or anything like that, you know? So, you know, and on the single family side, because you're guaranteeing the loan, you know, they can t- certainly come after your personal assets, any bank accounts that you have. Yes. So non, non-recourse loans, is this typical in multifamily investments in your experience? Yes, it's very typical to get these non-recourse loans. So now I do have to clarify that it's not 100% non-recourse. There is a bad boy clause that's in there as well. And so what that typically means is that, you know, it's non-recourse. You're not personally guaranteeing the loan as long as you don't do something fraudulently, right? So once you do that, then it triggers that bad boy clause. And that's literally what it's called, right? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you're, then it turns to a recourse and then they, they can come after you definitely. So, so that's the biggest difference. And so, you know, for you to be able to qualify for one of these, you have to have experience. But then also the, mm-hmm. the, the loan amount has to be typically a million dollars or more uh, loan amounts. That means the purchase price has to be over a, a million bucks, right? Because the loan amount has to be a million bucks. But what I'm, you know, been speaking about today here has been more on, on the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac side, right? These are government uh, agencies that are able to back up the lenders and ensure the, the lenders, the lenders have to go, kind of go off of their guidelines. So Fannie and Freddie are the ones that, that provide these guidelines. Everything I've been discussing. There's other banks that don't have the same requirements. And they could be a little bit more lenient, but you know the ones I've been speaking about are, are Fannie and Freddie this this entire time. Yes. So you work with banks that are backed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Yeah. So these are DUS lenders. So Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac approved, and so everything that they do has to go off of the the Fannie or Freddie guidelines, depending on which which loan we're, we're going with. Sometimes we'll go with Fannie. Sometimes we'll go with Freddie. Uh, it just depends. You know, it depends on the market. It depends on the assets. You know, some are, are some can be uh, more favorable 
than another, uh, one versus the other. It just depends on different situations. But yeah, those are the ones that we like to go after because we get better terms from them, right? So if there's, you can go to a, a, get a bank loan, but you're typically going to pay higher rates. They're typically going to be for a shorter period of time. And so they can bring more risk, especially in the, uh-huh. the state of the market, right? Where, you know, if we're at the top of the market and we might be coming to, to a softening in the market, those typically can provide more risk because you have to be able to do something within three to five years, you know, whereas the longer term Fannie or Freddie, you know, you can, you can have a seven or eight or, or, or 10 or 12 year deal alone. And so even if, if you have a dip in the market, you can uh, stay in the deal longer and, and kind of ride that, you know, weather that storm, mm-hmm. so to speak, you know. Is there specific criteria that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac require in order to qualify for these loans with, that have favorable, somewhat favorable terms? Sure, sure. Yeah, so as I was saying, um, they want to see that you have the the net worth and, and liquidity, right? And so it doesn't have to be like, like if you're looking for a loan, Jorge, it doesn't have to be like necessarily you or, or you know, anyone out there listening um, in the audience, it doesn't have to be you. You can partner with uh, with other people. So that's the beauty of this business is, is that it's a team sport, right? So you can partner with somebody that has experience and then partner with somebody else, you know, have a third partner that has the, the financial, uh, the balance sheet, right? So and then you can you can do a deal, right? So mm-hmm. those, those so the requirements are the net worth, the liquidity, the experience. They want to make sure that you don't have any felonies, uh, any any of those kind of things. They want to make sure that you've done a Fannie or Freddie type of deal before, and you've done it with a similar type of property, right? So if if you've done it with a with a say a twenty unit deal, and now you're you're trying to buy a six hundred unit deal, this is not the same, right? Because even though you've done Fannie and Freddie, you haven't done a six hundred unit deal before. So you mm-hmm. better you better have somebody on your team that's done something similar to the 600 unit, you know, maybe a 400 mm-hmm. unit, 500 unit deal, right? So that's, you know, that, that's what they want to see, something similar to what you've done in the past, yes. Yeah, okay. So going back to the markets that you have invested in, you said Dallas, Phoenix, and Houston, right? Correct. You started in Houston, and then did you go to Dallas from there, I think? Yeah. So yeah. So so Houston, Dallas, uh, Phoenix. So, so just to clarify, I, I'm in some some other deals as a passive, and I have uh, some small GP roles and, and some other deals that, that are not in those markets. You know, in Atlanta, in Tennessee, you know, Dallas, some uh, another couple of secondary markets here in Texas. But the the deal, the markets that I'm in, where I'm I'm active, and you know, we're leading deals is is Houston, Dallas, and and Phoenix. And we like those markets because, you know, first of all, Texas is a really, really strong market. You know, we're continuing to have, you know, job growth, population growth. It's a business-friendly state. It's a landlord-friendly state. You know, we have more demand than supply and, and the B and C workforce housing space. And then, um, you know, Phoenix is, is very similar as well. It's just a thriving economy out there. So we, we like these three markets specifically. Okay. Juan, the project you invested in in Phoenix, I know that you don't have anybody based in Phoenix within your group. So it's been uh, mostly an out-of-state investment experience. What has that been like? Yeah, as you said, this property is in Phoenix. You know, first of all, I chose the market, right? Because I like the market. And then, you know, I had to figure out the rest afterwards, right? The rest meaning being local on, on the market, right? So in this particular case, I was able to bring in somebody who who is not necessarily local to the market, but they're very close. So, so they're, you know, like an hour away on a flight. So it's about four hours away, you know, driving. So they're pretty much the local, the quote unquote local guy. But do you bring them in as a, as a general partner with you? Yes. On the project? Yes. Yes. Okay. I bring him in as a general partner and like that. He's, he's more that the hands-on guy because you want to do what you can to, to make the, the project successful, right? Whatever it takes mm-hmm. to make it successful. And that's what we did. And so we have weekly calls with our, our regionals, with our property managers, you know, all the time, um, every single week. And we're having calls and we're having, you know, constant communication. And then we get out there once a month. So either he goes out there, uh, the, the more local guy, or, you know, myself or uh, my, my main business partner, uh, get out there. So um, somebody's out there every single month, you know. So the challenge with being out of state is if you don't have anybody, right, and, and just being able to travel there on a consistent basis. But for us, because there's multiple uh, partners, then we're able to, to always have somebody out there, uh, boots on the ground when necessary. And so uh, we can get him out there, you know, just, you know, anytime, any weekend he can, he can head out there. But the, the most important thing is, is to be on top of your, your, your team on site 
and to make sure that everything's going as planned. Okay. How did you find this property? I, I actually know the story, but I find it very interesting because it just seems so simple, but just very patient on your part. Can you tell us a little bit about how that was? Yeah, yeah. So this was a property that a broker sent to me. And so it's a she. So she sent me the, the deal, but it was a market. When I, when I first identified that I wanted to go into the market, I started to reach out to brokers, right? I started to reach out to brokers and I'll give them my criteria. And so she would get back with me with certain deals, right? And I'm like, yeah, this is not going to work because of this. You know, I'm looking for this instead. And so she, you know, we, we, you know, always make sure to give her communication and feedback immediately, right? So, you know, we had the, the constant communication going back and forth. And then for a while, I didn't hear from her. You know, so it was like two, three months I didn't hear from her. That was my fault also for not necessarily following up, you know, during that time. But then, uh, you know, suddenly she uh, shot me an email. She, she said, hey, I think I found the, the property that, that fits you know, exactly what you're looking for. And so, you know, I, you know, I looked at it, ran the numbers, you know, it's the property, it, I would say it's, it's definitely a, a C area. The property itself is, is a C asset, but it's an, an up and coming area. And the property was more so neglected. It was a long-term ownership. They weren't putting any capital into the deal, but the numbers worked. You know, we were able to, to get some strong financing in place as well. And, um, you know, my main business partner, he was actually heading out there to Phoenix that same weekend, whenever I, the property came out, you know, was sent to me, it was actually heading out there. I'm like, man, what a coincidence that so you were heading out there. Mm-hmm. And then I just got this property and, you know, ran the numbers, the numbers look good. You know, whenever you hit out there, take a look at it. And he, he went out there, he took a look at it, drove by, uh, he got a good feel for it and he liked it and he gave me his feedback. Right. So I was like, okay, well, the, the numbers worked. Now let me go out there and check it out. So that's how things kind of came, came together. Right. But the uh, reason why we're able to get it as well was because the broker that had it wasn't necessarily a broker that focuses on a hundred percent on multifamily. They focus on several different asset classes on the commercial, in the commercial real estate side. So what we realized was that they weren't marketing the deal properly to the multifamily investors, to, to the multifamily space, to the guys that would be interested in acquiring the deal. Right. So they only had mm-hmm. a select group of people that would be interested in buying a deal. And so luckily we're one of the, those groups that, that was interested. And so, yeah, that's how we're able to take down a deal. It was a long-term ownership, uh, 14 years the, had been owned by the previous ownership. And, um, you know, it was a lot of uh, CapEx items that needed to be addressed. But yeah, we, we made sure to account for all that good stuff and uh, we're able to get some strong financing in place. And we really are doing some, some good moves in the property now. So for how long were you in back and forth communication with a, with a broker until she sent you this property? Yeah, that's a very good question. So it was several months. It was several months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, back and forth, back and forth. And so that's the biggest key is, is you know, they're going to send you deals, you know, and it's okay if it doesn't work for you. You know, mm-hmm. you just got to make sure that you provide the feedback and you got to make sure that you tell your that broker that, hey, it doesn't work for me because of these reasons, you know, and just be honest, they're, they're okay with that. They want to know your feedback, whether it's, it's a yes or a no. They still want to know like that they're not spending more time, you know, with you on that specific deal, but also so that, that they know what kind of deal is ideal for you, right? Because they don't want to see you something that you're not going to make a move on, you know? So, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was several months um, until that, that happened, yes. I was very surprised when you shared in one of your meetups a few months ago, you told us you did a case study on this investment and you told us the feasibility period and the closing terms. And I was very surprised by how aggressive they seemed. What were those those terms? Can you remind us? Yeah. So you, as far as like the uh, the earnest money, is that is that what you're... Earnest money and time period to close. So we always like to push for an um, early access agreement for all of our deals. But before we even were able to do that, the, the seller was asking for a nearly two and a half percent earnest money deposit. And so... You know, typically out there in the market, and it really depends on, on the market. It depends on the deal. It depends on if, if the, the seller and, and purchaser have transacted before. But, you know, typically it's around 1%. You know, so 1% of the purchase price is the earnest money deposit they put down. It, it can go hard day one. Hard meaning that it's non-refundable day one. You know, before you even do your due diligence, it's already non-refundable. So was this it, the case in this property? It was a case in this property. It was, it was day one. So non-refundable, 2.5% of the purchase price, it, which... It, it was like 2.3, 2.3. So, 2.3. so we're looking at over 400,000. Yes. 400,000 that was non-refundable day one. 
And, you know, because they wanted that and I was trying to fight for that number to go down, obviously, because that's a, that's a ridiculous number. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but me, you know, Phoenix is, is pretty competitive and, and, you know, a lot of the transactions have transacted with that 2% earnest money. And so what we did was we, we put in a, like an early access agreement uh, to where, mm-hmm. Hey, we're going to be able to do uh, some of our due diligence beforehand. And so, so we have, how long seven, is that period normally? It, it was, it was seven days for us. So okay. we have, we have seven days where we can do a bunch of our due diligence as much as possible. And then once we get to that, that seventh or eighth day, then the money goes hard, the, that earnest money goes hard. But at that time, you know, by that time, we already know if we're moving forward or not, right? So and, in seven days, you have to do pretty much the large portion of your due diligence in order to get you comfortable putting yes. $400,000 of money hard. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that, that, that was the case in this one. I mean, obviously, we, we tried for, for longer, but, you know, the sellers, you know, they're, they're not going to be, you know, usually they're not going to grant you that time, right? Because usually it's, you won't even get an early access in most, in most mm-hmm. cases. Once you go on a contract, you're as day one, you're, you're, you're well, moving forward. So you know, in, most in most cases, cases really, that, yeah. that's what I find surprising. The fact that without even, so, or let me put this another way. Are you protected in some way to or if you find something that's surprising on the property, you can back out in some way and get back your earnest money? But yeah, because yeah. otherwise, how do you get comfortable putting? Because if I were a seller, I, I mean, what you can do is put the property under contract with someone and then not. I mean, what I would be afraid yeah. of a seller doing is trying to put it under contract with many different people and keeping their earnest money. No, I agree. I agree. So just uh, let me back up real quick too. There's a couple of different ways of, of doing this. One is you put down your, your earnest money, but it, but it's not hard. So meaning that it's refundable, right? If you don't mm-hmm. close on a deal, then it's refundable. So there's cases, but those are, there's cases like that. And they used to be more common, you know, many years back in this day and age, it, it, almost every property that you acquire, it's going to be some sort of hard money, meaning that it's going to be some sort of uh, a portion of the capital or all the capital is going to be non-refundable you know, in this, in this market, right? Because it's, it's, it's a hot market, you know, people want to mm-hmm. be in, you know, they want to buy nice, nice assets mm-hmm. and, you know, it's a good investment. I just want to clarify that. So for us to feel comfortable, you want to try to negotiate an early access. If you cannot get that early access for whatever reason, then you have to negotiate for only a portion of your, your money to go hard. So if you're putting mm-hmm. down $200,000, for example, then maybe only 25,000 will go hard or 50,000 will go hard. And the rest of it, the remaining will go hard after you complete your due diligence, which typically is like 30 days, you know, in most cases, right? So you, you go into contract, you have 30 days to, to perform your due diligence. After due diligence, then your money goes hard. So you can negotiate that, right? To where you, you only a portion of your earnest money goes hard. In a lot of cases, it'll go hard day one, like all mm-hmm. of it, right? So it, it's every deal is different. Every case is different. But another way that we protect ourselves is it is hard subject to the environmental. So if you're mm-hmm. during due diligence and the environmental is, it comes back with, with some issues, then our, our capital or our earnest money is refundable uh, okay. subject to a title. So that if uh, they're, they're running the title and, and, and things issues are found, then that's another way that we're able to get our refund or capital back, our earnest money back. Right. Okay. The other way is a seller performance. So if the seller is not doing his part and not providing documents that are needed, not providing access to the property, you know, those kind of things, then that's another way. So any one of those three ways will allow us to be able to get our earnest money back. But just that would only work in the event of a surprise, right? It may be hard to get your money back if you find a tiny detail and if you regret your purchase and then find a tiny detail and title just to try to get out of the deal, it may be hard to do so. Yeah. So it's usually like, you know, bigger reasons. Um, So now if, if you put the property in a contract and you put 200 grand as earnest money and and you're moving forward, you're like in day, day four, day five, and you're doing physical due diligence at the property, the meaning that you have your trades at the property and, and, you know, you have the roofer and, you know, plumbing guy, electrical guy, electrician. If you have a roofer go on on the roof and he's like, Oh man, you know, your roofs are shot, you know? And so then you, as, as a buyer, you go tell the, the seller, Hey man, I need, you know, $300,000, you know, discount because my, your roofs are shot. You know, mm-hmm. the chances are the, the seller's going to be like, forget it. You know, you're, you're not getting your money back. You know, you should have saw that before you got this property in the contract. Whenever you want to go towards the deal, you could have looked up in the, in, at the roofs and noticed that, Hey, they're, they're a little older. 
you know, I can, uh, you should go ahead and account for that as, as another CapEx expense. So those are things that you should see before mm-hmm. you put a property in a contract. Make sure you account for that before you put it on, on a contract. You shouldn't ask for those things, you know, after it's already, you know, under contract. So, you know, people do. People, people do that all mm-hmm. the time and you're not going to get your money back. And so even if you try to request it, you request your, your earnest money back because the seller is not budging, uh, it's not going to happen. In most cases, it's not mm-hmm. going to happen unless it's, the guy is a really nice guy and he's like, oh, I didn't know that these roasts were bad either. You know, that's, thanks for, for letting me know. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's hardly ever the case, you know? So, yeah. And again, a lot of this happens because we are in a very hot market and a seller's mm-hmm. market. So the sellers are able to pretty much get whatever they want and people are still going to pay it. And people are still going to overpay. But this would be, these terms that you're seeing now would be very different if the if we were in a very slow market. Correct. If we're in like in 2010, 2012 range, 2013 even, it would be a different story, right? So you can put earnest money and maybe none of it goes hard or maybe just 25 grand goes hard. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that would be typical. I mean, the case that we just did right now, the Phoenix deal, 400 grand. I mean, 400 grand, like really? You know, yeah. and so, I mean, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, it's, all, it's almost half a million that you're putting down. But yeah, it's because it's a heated market, you know, uh, throughout. It's because, you know, these are our cash flow producing assets. We have some very favorable capital markets fundamentals there. And so we're able to get some some historically low interest rates versus maybe 2010, 2011, 2012. You, know, you weren't able to get that. You're able to get maybe six, seven percent, you know, I don't know, five percent, five to seven percent. Um, and even then those numbers weren't that bad, right? But now mm-hmm. we're, we're able to get into threes. And so it's it makes it much more favorable to, to buy some of these deals. Mm-hmm. So in, in those seven days that you have for early access, you're not, I'm sure you're not able to evaluate the whole asset, but what are the important things that you look at that you have to ensure that there are no surprises within those seven days? Yeah. So the big things that you want to see during those seven days are things that you cannot see just by touring a property on your own, right? So it roughs, that, that would be one of, the, one of those things. Obviously, if you can, you can take a trade, you take a trade. But the most important things that we look for are like plumbing, because those mm-hmm. are things that you can't see, right? You can't, you, you tour a property with a broker and, and you're interested in buying the deal. You can't see any plumbing issues. So you want to make sure that you take a plumber out there and they scope the lines and, and they make sure that we don't have any any issues with those, uh, the, the plumbing, mm-hmm. right? That's very, very important. If all that checks out, good. So the, the key there is to, to get the guy scheduled to go out there like like day one. Hey man, mm-hmm. I got the property in the country like, like today. You go for it, right? So you mm-hmm. got to tell them ahead in advance because they have to get out there and it'll take them a day or two to, to get the job done. And then you have to get the report back, right? So the report doesn't just come, come to you as they're doing it. It, it. it takes a day or two, even from there, to get that report back. So it, it takes a few days, though. So that, that's one thing. Electrical is another thing because that can be expensive. You know, maybe take, you know, foundation, you know, that, but foundation, that, that's also another thing that's building by building. It's not going to be the entire property, right? Um, mm-hmm. Especially in, uh, the, uh, in, in apartment buildings. So those are the main things that we like to look at, right? And then you can take it from there. Okay, perfect. So what about the deal that you mentioned briefly that you have going on right now in Houston? That's Los Prados, right? That Correct. The name of it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that property? Where, where are you in the process right now? Yeah, yeah. That's a deal that we have in Houston. It's a 264-unit uh, deal. And so that one is, is a very solid deal, you know, and, and we should be closing here very soon. So we're... Yeah, it's it's going to be a, a nice, strong, uh, cash flowing deal. It's already the seller he invested eight million into the property, so about thirty thirty thousand a door. Uh, it's got new roofs, new exterior hardy, new windows, even new sidewalks. You know, AC units. I mean, it's got a lot of nice things, and and so we're uh, the value add uh, component there is to uh, do interior renovations, and then uh, do some uh, other income sources and revenue. So a lot of good things there. So we'll be closing here. In the next uh, few days, uh, here mm-hmm. in February, and it's a five hundred six C offering. So this is available to uh, to credit investors, and we have a few spots that are open you know, remaining. So if anybody was interested, I mean, not trying to trying to pitch a deal, but like you know, if anybody was interested, it's a five hundred six C offering. So yeah, you can definitely yeah. reach out. Whether someone somebody's interested for this deal or for or for the next one, they should definitely reach out to you. Yeah, for sure. Another thing I wanted to touch on, Juan, we talked about how hot the market is right now for mm-hmm. investing in multifamily. Mm-hmm. And I know you've mentioned before that you've been looking at 
getting into ground up development next? Is is it is this one of the reasons why? Yeah, no, definitely. I think I think it's, it's one of the reasons why. Yes, um, you know the the, the pricing on on some of the 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 value add the quote unquote value add deals. Um, you know they're getting way up there now. Um, so you, you, it's not uncommon to see deals that are trading for one thirty, one forty, uh, a unit. Um, uh, you know, and you know, yeah, it depends on the market and depends on on the the square footage. Uh, you know, of, of the the building, but but yeah, the, the pricing is getting way up there. And so you're almost at the point now where, hey, man, what's the cost to build? You know, if mm-hmm. you can build mm-hmm. for similar, then why not just build, right? Because then you're going to have brand new foundation. You're going to have brand new plumbing, brand new electrical. I mean, the building's going to be brand new and you're paying virtually the same thing, right? Versus some of these C-class, you know, 50-year-old buildings, yeah. you know, they're, they're asking for 130, 140, 150,000 a, a unit. But then, yeah, you, you can do some interior renovations and you can put a roof on it. But guess what? The, the plumbing is still going to be the same. Uh, electrical is still going to be the same. You know, um, foundation is still going to be the same. So all that is still 40, 50 years old, you know, and you're paying the same thing, right? So yeah, you can look at the cost of the land and the cost of, to build. I mean, those are factors that you got to look at, right? Mm-hmm. But, but if you can have a total of having the cost of the land, having the, the cost to build, you know, and, and your all-in cost is very similar, even it's, if it's a little higher, I mean, it, it, it's fine. Uh, five it makes sense you, for getting a brand new asset. In yeah, exchange. it just it just makes more sense. So so yes, um, I'm not going to shift my focus away from value add multifamily. It's just something that I'm gonna I'm gonna look into introduce, you know, in this state of the market, and especially for for us, you know, we're we're in Texas, you know, I'm I'm in Houston specifically. I mean, you're here as well, Jorge. So we're able to find some some solid some solid pieces of land. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just got to do your due d- diligence to make sure it's it's uh, the demographics fit, you know, and all the the due diligence are required uh, to take it to that that shovel ready you know stage. But but yeah, you know, if you're able to find the the right you know piece of land in, in the right market, you know, the the fundamentals are there. I mean, we have a shortage in in, in workforce housing, so you can build maybe mm-hmm. a, a class A minus minus. You know, it doesn't have to be the the class A plus plus plus. Where where mm-hmm. it has all the bells and whistles and it's like a resort style apartment community, but you know build something that's is more of a workforce housing, where it's not affordable housing but it's workforce housing, then you're gonna have that demand, you know, and, and there's gonna be a, a, a bunch of different tenants, you know, because we have that, we definitely have the the demand. We don't we don't have enough supply. So so yeah, that's a that's a long answer for for your short question, but, but yeah, that's no, but it's, definitely it's what, what we're looking for. Yeah, you answered you answered it perfectly fine. Are you ready for the fire round where we get to ask you a few quick questions to get to know you a little bit better? Yeah, let's do it. I like it. Perfect. First question, what's your favorite place to travel to? Man, that's, that's a good one. So so uh, to be honest with you, I haven't been uh, like all over the world. I mean, I've been to, to Asia. I've been to, um, obviously, you know, I've been to, to Mexico. Uh, I've been to, you know, Hawaii, those kind of things. But I would say my favorite that, I, that I've been to was, was, was Asia. I haven't been to Europe. But uh, yeah, it was it was Thailand where I went to specifically, so it was it was very nice. Yes. What part of Thailand? It was uh, Koh Samoy, so it's an okay. island off of. Um, so we took a, a flight from Bangkok to Koh Samoy. I think that's the way you pronounce it. Uh, beautiful mm-hmm. island, beautiful people, beautiful scenery, and the food was delicious. So yeah, 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 the pad thai. Yeah, is yeah, and so real quick, um, without dragging it too long. You know, we're Americans, so we're used to eating like in big portions. And so uh-huh. over there, their, their portions are much smaller, right? It's like half of what I'm used to eating here, but the price is like half, right? So yeah. then, you know, we go over there and order and, and I'll be done. I was like, hey, can you bring me one more? Like, they're looking at me like I'm crazy, <laughs> like one whole entire entree. Like, yeah, one other, one other one, bring it to me. But it, like you leave like spending like eight, 10 bucks or whatever. It's like, and you get yeah. like two, two entrees and then, and then you're like, I feel good. But yeah, no, the food <laughs> is delicious, man. So it, it was awesome. Yeah. Love it. What's your favorite movie? Favorite movie is The Gladiator. The Gladiator. Wow. Yes. That's, that's, I would say that would be my answer to this question as well. Okay. Yeah. No, I just, you know, it, maybe it's favorite, a lot of people's favorites, but I just, I like the storyline. I like the, mm-hmm. yeah, just a, a strong storyline, you know, and, and, you know, it gets you pumped up, you know, afterwards as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. That's a fantastic one. What's your favorite book? A favorite book. So, Man, I wouldn't say I have a favorite book. I have a lot of favorite books. You know, I, I wouldn't say I have one specific favorite book. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of them that have helped me, you know, throughout my career. I would say Think and Grow Rich is, is one of them. And, you, and these are pretty classic books. Think and Grow Rich, 
the cash flow quadrant is another, you know, uh, shoe dog. I mean, there, there's so many books I, I can go on. I can give mm-hmm. a list really. I mean, there's a bunch of books that, that I really, really like. There's another one that was called the slight edge, slight edge. And, and that was uh, another one of my favorites as well. Oh, okay. alchemist, alchemist as well, man. I, I'll tell you, I can, I can give That's you a, a list. list. I, That's a good yeah, list. I, I, lo- I love to, to read. So I hope people are taking notes. I am. Yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah. Okay. What's uh, the best advice that you've received? I would say is to obviously educate yourself, right? And anything that you do, educate yourself, but education only goes so far. Education without action gets you nowhere. So ultimately what you need is the action to go with the education. So you put the education with the action together and then you can, you can make things happen. So I would say, yeah, you know, learn, learn as much as you can. But then at one point you gotta, you gotta put that book to the side and, and, and roll your sleeves up. What's a, a quote that you live by? Uh, whether you think you can or, we, or whether you think you cannot, you're right. And that's by Henry Ford. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, last question. How, how can people reach you? How can people contact you to either learn more about your investments or to ask you any question they may have? Sure. Yeah. No, thank you for that. So people can reach out to me on social media. I'm all over social media. So that's at the Juan Vargas. So that's Instagram. You know, that you can find me on, on Twitter, LinkedIn as well. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, Facebook. And then, you know, if, if you would like to shoot me an email, um, you know, talk shop, or if there's any way I can help, uh, you can shoot me an email at Juan at GenWealthCapital.com. Juan at GenWealthCapital.com. And, you know, we also host a, a meetup on a monthly basis. And we'll have the next meetup uh, here on the 15th in the Woodlands. And so if you're local, then we'd love to, to have you. So that, that's on a monthly basis. But every month it will be, um, you know, the first weekend of the month or second weekend of the month is when we, we hold that meetup. So. Look forward to, uh, to catching you guys there. And you also have a podcast, right? That everybody should tune into. Yeah, yeah. So I have a podcast. It's called Commit to Wealth. Um, so you can check that one out as well. And we have a, a Spanish one as well. In addition to that one, that's called El Cashflow Cafe, where we interview a bunch of entrepreneurs in the uh, real estate space. And it's purely in Spanish. And one of our, our guests there was Jorge. So, uh, so mm-hmm. you guys know he, he's, he's fluent in Spanish. Yeah. Much more than, than I am, and much better than I am, for <laughs> sure. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that was a, a fun episode. I hope everybody checks it out. And yeah, that's uh, Cashflow Cafe and Coming to Wealth to hear more about Juan. Juan, it's been a pleasure having you today. Thank you very much for making the time. I hope I didn't hammer you too hard with some of no. the questions. But, it was but good. I, there was a lot that I that I wanted to get from you. And thanks for sharing with us. Uh, hey. We had a, good time. I, hey, Jorge, no, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on as a guest. Uh, thank you for your audience for, for listening to the episode as well. And uh, yeah, it was fun. I look forward to catching you here, here pretty soon. Awesome. Thanks, Juan. Thank you. <laughs>